We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. This season of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day is sponsored by Fourth Estate Books. How to Lose a Country, the seven steps from democracy to dictatorship, is an urgent call to action from one of Europe's most well-regarded political thinkers. Eke Tamalkuran gives us a field guide to spotting the insidious patterns and mechanisms of the populist wave sweeping the globe, while proposing alternative, global answers to the pressing questions of our time before it's too late. I really need that book right now. You can find out more about how to lose a country at fourthestate.co.uk. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Raven Smith to the podcast, who is, for my money, the funniest man on Instagram. But he also has a proper job. Smith is a columnist for British Vogue, a freelance creative director, and a guest lecturer at Central St. Martins. He's currently working on his first book, Raven Smith's Trivial Pursuits, a smart and irreverent take on modern life, which will cover everything from IKEA meatballs, people making their own ceramics, date nights, Anton Deck and everything that goes through Smith's head in a yoga class. To give you a hint of the treat that's in store, in a recent Vogue column, Smith described Brexit as the toxic boyfriend you can't get a clean break with, like dividing up a Victoria sponge with your hands. (laughs) 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 I managed not to laugh while I was saying that. Oh, Raven, Uh, welcome. Hello, how's it going? Hi. It's good. I'm so happy to have you. I'm happy and slightly intimidated to have one of the most stylish men I've ever seen in my flat. But it's very kind of (laughs) you to come here. I'm very happy to be here on this slightly chilly day. It is slightly chilly, but you're looking cool and fresh. Great, thank you. Tell us about your name. I know you get asked this all the time, but Raven is your real name, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the only people I can thank is my parents for that one. I always think of it as like party at the front, business at the back. So Raven (laughs) and then Smith. People are always like, what's your last name? And I say guess and they always guess Smith. 
Do they? Yes, because I was like, think of just any last yeah. name and it's Smith. So yeah, apparently in Jamaica it means free spirit. So my dad was keen on it. My initials are Ras, which means prince, as in Rastafarianism. So it's all very meaningful. Do you like ravens, the birds? I think so. I think one of those things that I want to look at in my book is what people call their kids, because I feel a lot of pressure to give my kids names that everyone remembers and they're completely unique, but also not completely made up. It's quite a big yeah. one. Raven is also a good one because I'm imagining not that many people ask you how to spell it. No, no, never. I almost have this kind of compulsive problem with remembering other people's names because Me mine is just instantly memorable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> tell me, yeah. Uh, who are you again? <laughs> um, tell me what does go through your head in a yoga class because I'm constantly oh, so fascinated by what other people stuff. are thinking. It's yeah. a bit of a nutty one. So I always think about I think because the great thing about yoga <laughs> is that you're meant to switch off from your like daily life and I do it in a hot pot they zip us in when we go into it so th- the idea is that the outside world is physically closed off and you have this yoga practice but I always think about what do I really think about when in a yoga class I feel like you're not meant to think about how good you are at doing it and how well you're doing it and essentially that's what I'm thinking about. Me too, I'm super competitive yeah. <laughs> and I know I'm not meant to be because it's all meant to be your inner yogi and how you feel yourself. I'm yeah. like, no, but that guy in the designer lycra is really annoying yeah. and I want to be able to do a crow better than him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I will tell you, <clears throat> if there are other men in my class, I will sweat and work so much harder <laughs> than if it's all women. I'm not like an alpha male. I'm not competitive with other men. But if there's loads of them in the class, I will never lie down on the mat. I will be up the whole time. <laughs> I bet you're really good at yoga. Um, I mean, that's not what it's about. No, I mean, well, damn you. Damn I f- you. honestly feel so great. It just opened up some kind of respite from constantly... I was swimming all the time. And I, it just became really boring to just be counting lengths. I tried it once when I was hungover at my my friend runs a class and I just, the endorphin hit was like I couldn't get enough of it. And I mentioned in the introduction that you are hilarious on Instagram and that's Thanks. how I came to know you because a friend of mine saw you Insta-storied my book yeah which i and she was like by the way the funniest man on instagram has a copy of your book and i was like what yeah and then i started following you and every single post is so brilliant and satirical and funny and hilarious and have you always had that capacity to be funny oh like at school as a, as a child were you the class clown? yeah oh that's so cringe yes i was <laughs> yeah i remember going to kids parties I mean, other children's parties, including myself, and people saying, oh, I don't know why we bothered to get a clown. I don't know why we got a magician. I've always been larger than life. And it's something that I've been coversely love about myself, this idea that we can bring the energy up for everyone, but also the fact that it doesn't necessarily give everyone a a voice when I'm talking a lot. So it's always been something that I've been aware of. It's just always been a good and bad thing. And often when I've interviewed people as a journalist, people who've become performers, frequently stand-up comedians mm. and actors, they were military kids, so they moved around a lot. Mm. This, this question is going somewhere, I promise you. Yeah. But they moved around a lot, so they had to fit into school very quickly because they used to change friendship groups a lot. Mm. And their way of doing it was often to act the class clown. And my question is whether you felt you were doing that to fit in in some way. Oh, maybe, probably. Oh, there's a lot going on there, isn't there? Um, It's definitely like a shield of some sort. But I used to found it so frustrating that no one would ever take me seriously. That was part of the reason I felt that 
I kind of tempered it a bit because I just couldn't have a serious conversation and I'm secretly quite serious. And I think what you'll see from my Instagram, as you said, it's not just jokes. It's kind of really peeling away at how we feel and how we live. And it is an irreverent take on that. I'm really trying to look at the way we interact nowadays. And has it been a surprise to you how popular your Instagram is? Yeah, I think there was a point a couple of years ago when I went to fashion week parties and people that I didn't know were saying hello to me. And I was found that, that those early stages were really, really weird. Super, super strange. And I think my husband's had that more recently, <laughs> that he has become a quiet archetype of sorts on my Instagram and he's not a quiet person at all. <laughs> what does your husband do? He is head of strategy at an agency. Okay. So he's got a really serious high-powered job. Well, high-powered, but important job. And I think people that know him from my Instagram think he is just sitting in the corner rolling his eyes at me <laughs> doing selfies, which just isn't <laughs> our relationship at all. Are you an only child? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's something, yeah, I feel like I've got only child. On every ring on the way down, it's like, yeah, I'm definitely, yeah. And one of the benefits of being an only child in certain families is that you feel that you have all of your parents' love and attention. So you end up not needing love from other people in the incredibly needy way that someone like I would. Yeah. Does that uh, tally? No, so my mum was a single parent. I was an only child. So we had a very super close relationship. I never had to work for attention from my mum. So I actually, in relationships, just expect it, which is a very complex thing. I just expect it. If there's just two of you, there's a lot of unsaid communication. So I'm quite good at picking up what's not being said. I think that's interesting. And I think as I've grown older, my husband's from quite a big family. The difference between Christmas, like my family getting together, three of us, now my mum's remarried, it's so easy for us to be together. Whereas it's really difficult when there's eight of you. So there's a different energy to that as well. Mm. The actual being together in a bigger family is half the battle. And do you need solitude to recharge? Yeah, I have to be on my own for like a significant part of most days. <laughs> I'm the same, I'm yeah, the same. I found it really tough when I moved to university and sharing, house sharing. I just have to shut myself away for a few hours. But I'm very happy in my own company. And I will just often get to the end of the day and be like, I've made a joke about it, but like last week, the only person I spoke to on Monday was my masseuse. <laughs> I was like, this, is, this can't be. It's that weird interaction, right? Especially as someone who is... I would say, a quite a heavy user of Instagram. It's constant communication, yet it's non-verbal. I was about to say, you spoke to your masseuse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, harder. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> um, so you've given me three really wonderful failures, okay, and good. I cannot wait to discuss them. And Great. The, the first one that you emailed me was being straight yep. slash normal at school. That's, yeah. That was a direct quote from your email. Yeah. And you said it was a massive fail but amazing. So explain what you meant. Oh, being straight. It was a failure for me. It didn't fit me very well. I guess I've always been gay. I mean, I assume. I don't really know. But about the time I turned like 11, I realised I wasn't like everyone else. So I just tried to hide the fact that I was gay. Like, I just remember really vividly, we had this trip called like Welsh Camp, where everyone went to Wales. And I just remember buying Loaded magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Buying Loaded magazine and reading it on the coach and being like, I read Loaded magazine. Like all these like stupid signifiers of what makes a straight man a straight man. I was very drawn to those, but I was terrible at them all. 
I mean, someone was like, I know you've only bought that so that no one knows you're gay. And I was just like, cool. Mm. Well, it's true. You know, I think for every gay guy, there is a period where you are hiding part of yourself. And I think I went through, I wouldn't say I was, it was a bad depression, but I was on my own for a lot. Cause I was basically friends with all women, girls, until I was about 11. And then those divisions between the sexes became quite noticeable and I didn't really fit in with anyone. I went to like a predominantly white school. I was like six foot million when I was like 11. So I was tall, black, loud. All of the things that I love about myself now were things that really made me stick out as a kind of young man. And I think made me a target for attention that actually at that point didn't really want. What kind of school did you go to? Was it a London school? No, it was in it's in Lewis. It's like really quite progressive, really normal. I would say there was a majority of people who are not homophobic that are having left that school. It's not like a culture of that. I just think your sexuality when you're kind of 14, 15, it feels like everything. Clearly you were coming to terms with your sexuality and you felt that made you different. Mm. Did you feel different in any other ways? Did you feel that it was an inclusive environment? Secondary school is really just tough. It's just tough. Everyone gets bullied. I have this idea that everyone gets bullied and how you react to it really shapes who you are for a lot of years later. And I think I was an obvious target being so tall and so gay. <laughs> and re- were you, because you're very, you're a very handsome man Thanks. for our listeners <laughs> who might not have seen a picture of you or yeah. met you in real life. But this is such an awkward question, but were yeah. you handsome then? Oh, I don't know. Oh I think that probably means know. that you were. <laughs> I think you probably were. So therefore, I was yeah. not fancied. If, is that what we're trying yeah. to peel away at? There weren't girls queuing up. And when did you come to terms with that? When did you start realising that you were gay? And It's hard to say. There was a big period when I was just on my own a lot and I didn't have a lot of friends. And then something changed. I can't really remember. I just had good friends again. I think it was just a really rocky period. Mm. And to be honest, the second I came out, everything just lifted and I went back to being myself again pretty much straight away. So that's like 15. And then since then it's been reasonably plain sailing how did your mother react well it was mock GCSEs so I was in a bad mood when I got home from school didn't go to school the next day went to the local library called my mum and said I'm sorry I was in a bad mood someone called me a faggot on the bus and she said are you and I said yes that's it over the phone (laughs) yeah my poor mum yeah so I told her over the phone and then she came home gave me a hug and she was like you know I think parents want the easiest route for their kids through life. You're mixed race. Like, there might, like, I want you to have an easy route. And this might just be another thing that makes it less easy, but it's up to you, essentially. And was it ever mentioned again? Or was it just then? Yeah, we talked about it a lot. And at one point, I felt really isolated. And she was like, well, let's look at the yellow pages <laughs> at like gay support groups. I went along to one. There's a lot of great things about growing up in Brighton, which is predominant, like has a big gay community. But for me, it wasn't a haven for me. I wasn't that bothered about it at all. At that point, I was like, I don't really need a load of other gay people and I don't need these clubs or whatever this culture is. Wasn't that appealing to me. I recognise that's quite a luxury to be able to opt in or out. Do you think that you are an accepting person of yourself? Yes. Oh, yeah. I love being gay. I absolutely would recommend it. Thoroughly recommend being gay. (laughs) I think for a long time as well, 
I was less accepting because I, when I think about it, I would say I'm tall, I'm black, I'm gay, and they're all the same thing. They're just things that I am. But actually, being tall doesn't have a, a big history of political background. So I think in more recent times, I can see better that being tall isn't the same as doesn't have the same historic political oppression. Yeah, political yeah. oppression. <laughs> Of the tall, yeah. So you you identified your attempt at being straight as one mm-hmm. of your failures, and obviously you bought Loaded magazine, and that wasn't convincing. Yeah. Were there other ways in which it was unconvincing and that you failed? Like, did you try and go out with girls? Yeah, I went out with a couple of girls. Nothing really happened, because I was, like, 12. I think it was, like, just shining out of me, and I was just trying to dim it all the time. So, like, baggy jeans, skate shoes, ugh. Just wanted to assimilate with the young men that I was growing up with but always just got on better with the women always 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 like always just got on better with girls Uh, and but they got to the point where they did not want to hang out with quite a feminine quite sassy black guy (laughs) I bet that's changed now but they're like (laughs) desperately trying to reunite on Facebook they're like Raven remember me (laughs) no no not at all you know the second I went to sixth form I just came into my own in such a big way I was just completely myself and it just didn't feel like an issue. I don't think I've ever experienced blatant homophobia towards me in the way that I would have experienced racism as a young kid. It was never an overt thing. What about now? Do you experience it now? No. No, I don't. Oh, not in a visible way, but I do think if you look at the way, I think some of the prejudice is getting smarter in a way. I think it's just that job you don't get and you don't know why. I think it's more that than someone being racist to you on the street. So I think ever vigilant. Mm. <laughs> uh, but also I got kicked out of GAY and called the bouncer racist and that definitely was not what was happening. Wait, wait, okay. Why yeah. did you get kicked out? I was screaming. I was doing, you know, in Toxic when it goes, Yes. I was like spinning around screaming that and the guy asked me to leave. That's outrageous. And I was like, I wonder why he's asking me to leave. <laughs> I think we all know. And then I woke up and had to delete those stories, right? See, <laughs> <laughs> so you referred there to a couple of periods when you were at school of feeling lonely yeah. and feeling quite down. Would you say that they were depressions? Yeah, definitely. Just a total isolation and having no common ground with anyone at that point really is how I felt. I think that made me less nice to more people. My defence was to be bitchy and that kept me very safe for yeah. a long a long time. That's how I dealt with that kind of attention. Deflection, essentially. And what about now? Is depression something you still live with? No, but I think I'm a real one for good habits. I basically got hypnotised to stop smoking when I was like 29, so like a few years ago now. One of the things he said to me was it takes three weeks to build a habit, any habit, and I was like, I just want to build my life full of good habits. So a lot of my, the, I do a lot of yoga. I do a lot of moving around. I express myself creatively all the time alongside doing work that is less me and more for somebody else, more client work. And I think I'm very aware of what my state is a lot of the time. So I don't really get depressed. What did you do after school then? Did you go to Central St Martins? No, I went to London College of Printing and I studied photography. So I did a foundation in Brighton. It was the best year of my life, 19, because I went out every night. I had a part-time job and my mum filled the fridge with food. Like I had no responsibility and loads of freedom. So it was great. And then I moved to London in 2003 and I studied photography, did a photography degree. And that brings us on to your second failure. Yeah. 
Because you failed your degree. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I failed my degree. The yeah, I failed one. my degree. Yeah. yeah. I failed it the first year. That I fa- yeah, I failed my degree. Oh, no. I love the way you're already trying to make it into something that isn't a failure. It doesn't, I mean, what... I'm I mean, like, it's fine because I passed the next year. <laughs> um, so I was working in a bar all the hours and I went to like a few... In my third year, I shot basically around near the bar in the street, made this work, yada, yada, yada. And about a week, two weeks into, like, before you get your results, my tutor rang me up and said you haven't done this really simple part of this course like you're not going to pass the course and I was like oh no and it turns out when she rang other people she hinted that if it was on her desk within the next few hours it might be okay but I just didn't pick up on the subtlety of what she was saying so I was like oh that's a shame so then then I went to graduation this is what's so embarrassing I went to graduation because my mum was like I'm coming up for graduation so you let's just go and I was like okay let's go I was like I don't know if I've past grad past the thing and that I had to sit in the audience with my mum and watch everyone graduate and then my friend gave me his gown <laughs> and me and my mum did pictures in a graduation gown that I'd just taken off someone else's head that's amazing yeah. so did, did, did your mum know by then that you hadn't oh she knew I hadn't go, passed yeah. it I had to write a CV of my work and I was like I just couldn't be bothered that's essentially what happened it's probably the only time in my life I've missed a deadline because I just was not foolish, arrogant, 20-whatever-year-old. Do you think you learnt from that always to meet deadlines? Yeah, or no, I, I, um, always manage expectations. And essentially that's my job for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, it's not about waiting for the deadline. It's about saying, the deadline's tomorrow and I'm not going to make it. It will be the day after. And then I think, yeah, that kind of communication. Interesting. Mm. So are you a good communicator in personal relationships as well? I hope so. Most of them. Nearly all of them. But I reserve a little special something for my husband. Yeah. We're going <laughs> but to nearly them. every other personal relationship. I think I've got really good email etiquette, but I actually got to the point where I was just emailing all the time. So I've been breaking out of that as much as possible. I think I do have good interpersonal skills, but there is something quite brash about me too that can... To be like what I see as quite emotionally intelligent and able to really listen to someone and reflect back what they're saying and help them see something. But also I can just be a bit of a dick. And there's no escaping that part of my personality that doesn't account for other people's feelings and thinks about myself. You see, I think (laughs) you're incredibly charismatic and I think what you've just defined is charisma. Mm. Because... I think you take interpersonal relationships seriously, Mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily take yourself seriously, Mm. except you do when you need to check in on your, like how you're fundamentally feeding. And it's it's a sort of interesting, mischievous patchwork of things. I'm always worried about being inconsistent, but I just think that's quite normal. I hope that's quite normal. I always impressed by other people who aren't kind of riddled with insecurity, who seem like they're not. I find that really interesting. Weirdos. <laughs> yeah. And then I worry that I seem like that and I'm like, well, it's just those few hours when you're out. It's not my whole life or your whole life or their whole life. Yeah, charisma's a funny one because I think it's something I talk to my mum a lot about because it's not. I don't think you can learn it. It's a funny one. It's magic. It's like love. You can see what you think it is, but you can't really explain what it is. So the failed graduation. Yeah, where the you, fake pictures. You borrowed, I love that you took fake pictures. Yeah, it's quite Piers Morgan front cover, fake pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my, holding my friend's scroll. <laughs> what yeah. did your mother say to you? 
I was at a point where I was just kind of quite wayward and invincible. I just thought I was invincible. And I think I'm surprised how little time I spent thinking about her and like checking in with her. I would go like three months without going home. I just was in a head state where I was quite, I don't know. It's quite, I think everyone has that when they finish their degree, that what next, that gulf of that was overwhelming. Maybe, maybe in retrospect, at the time I just wanted to go out and drink and stay up all night and get the free, there was a free bus that went from my house into Shoreditch and I used to just get on the free bus and party. She sounds really great, your mother. Oh, she's fab. Yeah, she's really good. What's her name? Debbie. Debbie Smith. No, oh, sorry. Actually, sorry, I don't know why I like want her whole name. And what's her address? Yeah, <laughs> she lives where now? Yeah. She's really good. You know, she was aware that I wasn't like other kids. And I think she assumed that was because of my mixed parentage. And it turns out I was gay. You don't have to answer this yeah. because it's a really intrusive question. Mm-hmm. But is your dad still on the scene? Do you know him? Do my dad lives about 20 minutes walk from me. I haven't seen him for a couple of years. We have like a, quite an amicable text relationship. That's kind of it. It's a very... I went through this weird phase where I was like, he is a great guy, but he's not a great dad to me. And that, accepting that just made our relationship really much easier. <laughs> because I was had all these expectations of him to... I remember really vividly being six and going to stay with him for a week. And I was like, I've got my swimming trunks. And he was like, why would you bring your swimming trunks? He's not about activity. And actually, my whole life is about activity. It's about filling the space with stuff. Stuff to do, stuff to see. I always think of creativity as someone who is a creative. I always think of creativity as connecting lots of different dots. So for me, reading a book, reading a tweet, going to the cinema, they're all dots that you can then connect in different ways. So when I'm teaching at St Martin's, I'll say you should watch this film because it's amazing and it might not help you at all, but then it's in your head forever. Mm. And maybe you'll draw on it at a later date. I love that so much because I think that a lot of people are quite precious about what they perceive to be culture. Mm -hmm. And I'm a massive high, low brow proponent. Like I love the Real Housewives franchise as much as I love a Thackeray novel or whatever. Yes. And I think people feel that they can fail at culture. But yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't think of it as high I think of it as flatline. It's all happening at the same time. You can be very happy eating a donut at the Tate. I think, you know, taste and culture, it was invented by the French, obviously. Taste was invented by the French so that people who could afford nice things were still outsiders because they didn't have this inner sense of culture and taste and what was right and wrong. It wasn't about money. It was about this kind of rarefied way of being. Hmm. You know, as someone who believes that everyone should be able to be excel at stuff and we don't need stuff, I still have massive attraction to stuff. I still want to go on the Orient Express again. (laughs) I still want to do all of those really nice rarefied things that make my day feel incredibly special. But I also realise that it's rubbish. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's glitz it's glam it's something um andre leon tally said about he lives in a gilded cage like it's this beautiful thing but it's a trap do you think that experience so a lot of people again bemoan the instagram generation mm-hmm. and say why are you taking photos of everything and why aren't you just experiencing the moment yeah but how do you combine the experience and the capturing of it I'm really awful. When I go to restaurants, I just regram people that have already taken nice pictures of the food. <laughs> because, That's genius. Yeah, because it's just a time-consuming... It's just rubbish. It's such a waste of time. I don't know. I think what makes me and the way I communicate so like open to people is the fact that I can... When I was on the Inori Express, I was laughing at the fact that I was on it because I can see 
that it for what it is it's silly that I'm so dressed up and I'm on a train and there's like three women falling over because they're wearing the most ridiculous heels it's like and the train's rocking from side to side I can see it for what it is and that doesn't mean I don't want it anymore I just see it and I can express that to other people you can orient express it to I other people. I can orient express that to other people. <laughs> That's why they but, don't pay me the big bucks. Yeah, <laughs> but the Instagram generation, I just, I mean, I'm assuming, like most things, the bubble will burst. And I don't know what happens after that. The paradigm will shift. It always does. I mean, we just can't see what's around the corner. But I remember, like, I lived for MySpace, and I don't remember the last time I went on it. What does your mum think of your Instagram following? My mum and my stepdad, they're impressed by the numbers. My mum doesn't have Instagram. She was with her friend at lunch. This is so funny. She was with her friend at lunch and they went on the Instagram and I'd done like a jokey post about mums. <laughs> and it was like, when you're, uh, if anyone wants to listen to an hour-long podcast, just my mum's just left one on my answer phone. And she was like, but I, I hadn't. And oh. I think she just, I think there's a literalness. And I think she's from a generation where you don't throw a, out a line that isn't true, essentially, that doesn't, isn't a joke about all mums. Yeah. <laughs> so I think she likes it. I think the only funny part of it was my mother-in-law does follow me on Instagram. So she was getting like quite a lot of updates about how I live. And my mum was like, I didn't know that about you. So now I actually send my mum pictures all the time in a way that I just didn't think about before. That's so sweet. Actually, mm. my, my mum follows me on Instagram and the reason she does it is so that she can see what I'm yeah, up to. And yeah. and I do think that that's something that gets really underplayed. It yeah. is actually a really lovely way of keeping in touch with people who you don't see all the time or who live abroad. Yeah. Or, yeah or so I send, now, I, now I send the pictures to my mum and she's Do you t- like text them happy. to her? Yeah, what's that's that, my mum? That's so <laughs> sweet. <laughs> what, like in, your Instagram posts are just pictures of you? The posts I put on Instagram, right? So like me and Clevedon <laughs> House standing next to a coat of armour without any funny captions. She doesn't get the funny captions. I think they understand that it's everywhere, but they're not that bothered. I'm going to go on to your third failure, and I'd actually like to read out loud the paragraph that you wrote to me, because I think it's such a beautiful thing that you have chosen, how you've expressed it. So Raven chose as his third failure, my marriage, even though I'm not divorced. (laughs) And he said, marriage is a concoction of failures and successes. I relentlessly fuck it up. Process, not a destination. It's constant failure and checking in on those failures. It's saying, I will be more chill. I will not mention the mess. I will not make every situation about how I feel. I will not keep putting pressure on my husband to be more like me. Failure across all of this. I just think, I love that. It's such an encapsulation of of a long-term relationship. Yeah, It's a constant compromise and navigation through failure. It's a constant failure, it is. When you look back at it, oh, it's just... There's something so fortifying about all the stuff that goes wrong in a relationship that you survive together. And that's not to say that my marriage isn't full of... It's majority we're laughing. The majority of the time, my husband comes home and he will dance and we'll dance together when he comes home. Like, it's like that we are sappy and very involved with each other, but also... It's like two stones bumping together down a river. We're just bashing into each other all the time. That's... Just big personality. <laughs> How did you fall in love with him? Oh, we met on the night bus. I remember a guy on the bus that I wanted his attention. He was on the bus already. He said he was with a load of people going to a party. And I came upstairs and everyone on the top deck cheered, which I love to tell people that that's what happened. <laughs> Wait, why? Because they... I was on the bus. What, they just re- <laughs> they recognised you? Yeah, so I was going to the same party as all of them. Oh my God. 
so they all cheered and he was like, who's that guy? And then I remember wanting his attention and I sat on the lap of the guy he was next to with my back to him to complete... This is really weird because so many people I meet think I'm off. The people I really, really, really like, I find it very hard to just chat to them. Mm. I'm more likely to completely ignore them. So I completely ignored him. I tur- he had a beer, I turned around, said I'm thirsty, drank some of his beer, went to the party. Oh. <laughs> it sounds suave, but I was, you know... Still quite kamikaze then. I was still a lot more kind of fiercely independent, I would describe it as. Wore that as a badge of like, I don't need anybody. Um, How old were you? 27. Okay. And he was 22. So he had just left university. And I remember the first time we were going to go on holiday together and I just booked my flight. And I was like, I put my flight to New York. And he was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, because had to get it off the list like I'm kind of hyper efficient like that and he was like that's so weird and I was like oh oh right you don't that's not what people do wait when did you you booked a flight saying to him come with me to New York yeah we were gonna go together and I just booked my flight I I booked my flight okay (laughs) and he was like right cool and then smashing did you you want him secretly you wanted him to come with you I wanted him to come I wasn't trying to divide it I just had to get on with booking my ticket so it's that independent only child You know, it's the same as when I worked in an office, everyone was like, you never offer anyone tea. And I was like, no, because I come from a family where if you want a cup of tea, just get up and make a cup of tea. I never thought about it of like, does everyone want a cup of tea? It's just not part of my makeup. I would just look after myself very happily. So learning to be in love with Richard and being able to make as much space for him within that was more difficult at the beginning. Do you think you're quite like a cat? In what way? (laughs) (laughs) In that you're completely comfortable with your own space and sort of need it. And yet you like being strokes, but you don't want to admit that you like it. So you're a little bit standoffish. Yeah, that would be me. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Poor Richard. My cats are special, but yes, sure. (laughs) I'm like other cats. You're like a generic cat. Yeah, I'm like a normal cat. Not like my very special full of personality that I haven't Mm. projected onto him at all, cat. (laughs) What kind of of cat is it? He's a tabby, which obviously the friendliest cats on the planet. Oh, they let you tickle their tummies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he is, um, he's basically like a little dog that looks after himself. I I would think my husband's probably a dog person, but it was my 30th and I was like, I want a, a cat. And we just ended up randomly with one of the most friendliest cats on the planet. I remember my grandma's cat scratching me my legs I remember my dad's cat scratching my legs and him being like it's your fault and it was I was blindfolded just <laughs> running around in his flat I never really had a good relationship with cats so because you're too we similar we have a great one because yeah. you're too similar oh God, um, so have you been with Richard ever since that night on the night bus no we went to home together that night and then there was about a year where we would just meet at night and neither of us was into it at all he was 22 and he, I was like that guy's an idiot and he was like that guy's a dick <laughs> and then very gradually it just became he sort of called it off and essentially saying no to me is the one way to really get my attention so after he said no we met at an acne party and I gave him like a lecture about how I just wanted to be his friend and I felt offended that he thought I was like some kind of man hungry man eater and then we were together straight after that <laughs> <laughs> yeah we went to the cinema and it was just he balances me out I think we both made each other a lot 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 better Definitely. So how did you fail at marriage this weekend? This weekend, I definitely made it about myself. We were going to a Christmas party. I just let him manage all of the organisation of actually getting us there. This part of me that is about vision. So I'm like, this is the vision. And then he has to come and 
kind of manage, I'm like, this is your thing to manage off the vision. I think sometimes it's like that and it's definitely like that with like, if we're going somewhere with the cat, I would never pick up the cat and put him in his box and carry the cat on the train. It would never happen. We've fallen into this quite clear, that's what Richard does. How did I fail? What did it say on the list? I mean, Um, like, I have a problem with being 10 steps ahead with my thought process. And I think sometimes I need to just make more space for him to have his thought process as well. And I think I fail at that all the time. He just is like, why are you talking about three years future? Yeah. And he's like, we need to just go around the house and mark up where we want all the light switches. (laughs) And I'm like... What's going to happen in five years <laughs> when we outgrow this house? So it's very, I'm, you know, really focusing on the future. And I think he he does too, but he also needs to do the steps. And how do you think you succeeded at marriage this weekend? Oh, we had a fight. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I think we should just put this down and go to the party and then pick it up another time. I think also you kind of have to give up your control, whatever control you want, which means it's always chaos. I find it quite chaotic and I have to just let the chaos in. That's the only way to be. Yeah. And do you think that you're learning about yourself through this? Yeah, I want to be a better husband to him, but that takes a lot of... I have this thing at the moment about driving, like we're both in the car... And a big part for me is making sure we're moving forward, but he's allowed to steer. It's that chaos and control of like, I get really stressed out when I feel like things aren't moving, but I also don't want to be in control of the destination. I want to work with him with that. So it's a little bit like, sometimes we'll sit, I'm like, oh, we should have a sit down and talk about this thing. And he's like, I know you've already decided what's going to go on. So why don't you just tell me? And I'm like, no, it's like, I actually don't know what's going to happen. I want us to just decide what happens next, but I want us to move. So it's that kind of balance. But And, and also it's so easy to say outside of the moment, this is how it goes. And like I've, we've, I fall into bad habits all the time. I can see why yoga is good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of concentrating on the present moment yeah. and not overthinking. Yeah, and I've taken a lot of the stuff from yoga and applied it to my life. That idea of like tension and release and like not trying to be the best at it, actually. It's a weird one, though, because I feel like I occupy such a unique space in the fact that I'm black, I'm gay, I'm mixed race. It's like all of these different things. I don't have anyone in my life that I'm that similar to. Like, no one's really jealous of the Queen because she's so removed. Yeah. I don't have this competitive closeness with... I don't have it with my husband. I don't have it with anyone. So I I don't feel like I have to be and do more stuff. I just feel great when I'm juggling lots of stuff, actually. That's when I feel most satisfied. You've got such insight about yourself, <laughs> honestly. It's, uh, it's, it's very rare to meet someone. I mean that in the best way. It's yeah. completely fascinating. To, yeah. I, I know you did just compare yourself to the Queen. Yeah, But sure. I'm on board with that. <laughs> but I know you didn't mean it that way. It's yeah. hilarious. Why did you get married? My husband asked me, and all I could think was, why would you trap me? I'm such a free spirit. <laughs> why would someone want to pin me to the ground? That lasted a really short amount of time, like two days. I think we both understood completely what a marriage would be for us. It was the wedding that we found the hardest to work out. It just felt so 
contrived. For someone who loves attention, I would never like have a birthday party. I'd never make an event about me. I'm much better at your birthday party than mine. I like I just find the kind of orchestrated eyes on me very difficult. And Richard was like, I want to go to Scotland for a month and have a party in like a druid circle. And I was like, we can't organise that. We'll never be able to organise that. So we spent three years arguing about what the ceremony would actually be. And then it all came together. We still argue about who picked the venue. (laughs) I'm like, I'm so glad I came up with it. And he's like, that was me. It was just our mums as our witnesses at the end of our road. And then we went to Rochelle Canteen and had took the place over for lunch with 40 friends. It was great. Oh, that's It was so one of the best weddings I've ever been to. And it could have been complete chaos because I was resisting organising it too much. I didn't even tell them we were getting married at the canteen. I was like, it's just a lunch. So it, it ended up being fantastic. It's like you had the vision for five years hence. You were kind of like, yeah. I can see where we are in five years and we're surrounded by chandeliers and I don't want to think about this right now. Yeah, and your relationship instantly starts to plateau when you get married. Like straight away. Because my husband was like, oh, phew. Oh, we're in now. And I was like, what next, what next, what next? And that's my stepdad completely. He would always be what next. He wasn't like, well done. He's not a well... He does say well done, but he's a what next guy. Yeah, That's learned behaviour. And I I love the what next. So where will you be in five years' time, do you think? Oh, such a good question. (laughs) We will have floors in every room of our house because we don't at the moment. Basically what happened was we were living in a flat that we loved. It had really, like, really good energy. We were so, so happy there. And I was like, if we have kids in the next five years, we have to move out of Camberwell. And we love Camberwell. And I was like, we should probably move now and get enough room for that. So we now live in a house that we can't afford to do up that will be ready in five years when we're going to have kids. For me, it's huge. I grew up in flats, right? I never lived in a full house. So for me, it feels like this like cavern, but it's really not nice place. It's, not got, it's like a bit down at heel. We don't really have an oven. You have to squat in the shower to shower yourself. On a whim, on a freelance day, I knocked down one of the walls upstairs. Richard came home drunk from the pub and opened up the door to the bedroom and it just went all the way back to the bathroom. <laughs> it was one of those. And someone was like, you, like, you don't know what you're doing. You shouldn't have done that in Birkenstocks. And I was like, right, okay, cool. It's part of that drive to move things forward. We wrote this quite extensive list of stuff to do. It's going to be great when it's done, but I think it put pressure on the relationship. We got a new roof, which is like the most expensive thing you can do that you can't see from your house. <laughs> it's like we would, all we can see is the hole where the guy fell through <laughs> into the bathroom. It's a long burn. And at the beginning of that, we knew that and we were fine with it. And now we're like halfway, not got the cash that we need to, and not really willing to give up all of the nice things in my life to do it i still want to go eat nice food out and stuff so it's a longer term so that will probably take five years and you're also writing your book i am writing my book so one of the challenges of writing the book was that i couldn't really sit in my house without doing stuff so i just taken a studio and i go there and write and then i'm going to berlin for a month to really go underground january in berlin in the freezing cold it's a numbers game yeah. It's a numbers game. It is. You just it's need to a sit numbers down, game. It's a numbers game. Nail yeah. the 1,000 words a day. Yeah. You'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to try and do that. And then, yeah, I am writing a book. That's terrifying. It's genius. I can't wait to read okay, it. I really good. can't. Raven Smith, what does success look like to you? Do you feel that you are successful? I think on paper, absolutely. But the what next part of me will never be fully satisfied. 
I don't think it will be. I think it will. I'll always want that kind of idea of something more. That's like a life of disappointment that I've just described. No, I think it's a life. <laughs> I, I relate, and I think it's a life of drive. Yeah. It's a life of questing, but it can be a great thing. Yeah. Everything is fuel. Yeah, it's rewarding as well, that push to not just luxuriate in the status quo. I always want something other. There's always another thing to... Like, I think of all of the book. I mean, my reading pile is like this pile of judgment that's like of unread, brilliant writing. So I will always have something to read. <laughs> I'll always at least... Even if I get all my wildest dreams come true, I'll, there'll still be a New Yorker that's still in its plastic. <laughs> I mean, everyone has has thousands of New Yorkers that they've never read. <laughs> oh, it's so tough. No, you can't keep ahead of yourself with a New Yorker. No. There's just too many words I in know. it. I <laughs> know. And I keep thinking, oh, I'll just read a bit of this, and then I'll, and then it's I, and then I'll know if I like it. It's, yeah. Yeah. Raven Smith, your to-be-read pile is expansive. Your charisma is immense. Mm. I am so thrilled that you've come on How to Fail to talk about your not-so-significant failures, but you've been a real delight. Thank you so much. And everyone, everyone must follow you on Instagram. Yes, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thank you. (laughs)